we've gotten through the most awkward portions of it, and you guys are still smiling, and you didn't leave, so it only gets better from here, I promise. Uh, so, so we talked about the first sort of, so these, these solutions for racism, especially the, these first three, um, we often just sort of fall into one of these without really having thought about it too much, because racism and race are such sort of tenuous issues in our culture that we uh, oftentimes don't want to talk about it. You know, we, race, religion, and politics, you know, so we often conjure up these ideas about these most important issues without much, you know, uh, influence from anybody else that we love and trust. And so, uh, basically, just trying to identify where we are on here is just sort of a, a way of just sort of saying, oh, I'm, I usually think more like that. And then we can see how that could be helpful. Then we can see how, ooh, that thing has some holes in it. So we just got to sort of sure it up a little. So um, that's really what we're after. And so the first was the, yes. I was like, man, if, if you guys didn't get that, I, we could just pack it up right now. The second is Anglo-conformity. Anglo-conformity. And it is as it sounds. This idea holds that racial minorities are encouraged to adopt European-American cultural values so that people of color move up the social ladder. So, I'll just read it again just so, we, so we're all on the same page. This idea holds that racial minorities are encouraged to adopt European-American cultural values so that people of color can move up the social ladder. Well, how does that look today like in day-to-day conversations? <laughs> I sort of made this up. So, um, If you can all just dress and look like and talk like Colin Powell, then you'd just be successful. So th- th- there's this, there's like, <laughs> or if you can all just be like Carlton Banks, right? <laughs> so there, there you go. So you guys know Carl- Carlton Banks better. <laughs> yes, you guys are my people. So it's, it's almost like, well, you know, if you just do these couple things, if you sort of step away from these cultural identifiers that are not identified with success and prosperous and being prosperous and what have you, and then just, you know, take on these things, then it'll be great. Well, that's a solution, but there's some weaknesses there. Uh, and, one of the, and one of the major weaknesses is, is that this assumes that... Um, my sentence doesn't make any sense that I wrote down, but I can wing it. This assumes that every uh, minority group is um, the same. Like everyone in every group is the same, but what sociologists tell us, I like sociologists, they're very helpful people. So they tell us that there is um, like three tiers in sort of minority groups. And so say if you have sort of this idea of the dominant culture. Then you have a person who is um, like a step removed from that, which is like a Carlton Banks. Then you have like the other sort of like extreme of a person who's like, well, I don't really feel like I need to try to be like the dominant culture. That's like a um, ice cube, right? In the middle, you have a person that's like, you know, I can talk to the Carltons, the Ice Cubes, and the people in dominant cultures like a Denzel Washington. Everybody loves Denzel. You love Denzel. My grandmama loves Denzel. So does yours. So hey. So so you have these like great. That you have these like. There's a there is 
a so for example, um, you will hear people say things like, "Well, he's a white, he's a black guy, but he acts white," or "He's a white guy, but he acts black, like Eminem," or you see, there's all these sort of like ways in which we sort of construe um, our understanding of like these grades of uh, what it means to be a certain race. So. Um, and I want to affirm that each of those, the Carlton Banks, the Denzel, and the Ice Cube, are good manifestations of that culture. So um, this sort of Anglo conformity model sort of just levels all of that. It says, you know what, don't be, don't embody any of this diversity that we see within these subgroups, but you know, be something completely different, and then you'll be successful. And so it, it really, it really doesn't help that much because it flattens even the diversity within different groups, which is similar to just flattening, you know, and making everybody colorblind because that goes against what we're talking about in Scripture with people who are so very different, all crying out to Christ as Lord. Because if we have, you know, if, if we were all just the same, if we were different races, but all have gone to the same schools, having gone, you know, work at the same type of offices, we all make the same amount of money, that's still not really being diverse. We're just different skin tones, you see? So we have to have people who are from all over the racial sort of spectrum and within those different races, all sorts of like cultural manifestations within them. And so that's a very good thing. So this Revelation 7 sort of reality can still hold true because we're not going to flatten everybody out and make them become something like that's not them to become successful. It's a mouthful, I know. So, and something else, so I guess the second sort of uh, weakness of the Anglo conformity model, uh, it actually assumes that that culture to which everyone conforms is actually greater than the other cultures. So, and, and that's pretty self-explanatory, so we don't have to go too uh, deep into that. So, that's, those are just two, weakness, two weaknesses of the angle conformity model. So, the third one, the third way uh, to think about solutions for racism is the white responsibility model. So, this one, it locates racial problems completely within the majority culture and absolve minorities from taking any action towards fixing problems. So, oftentimes you'll have extreme sort of structuralists those who see race as a structural issue often holding this position. Hey, since people... Oh, I keep doing that. Why do I... Sorry, I'm not used to this. I, I'll get there, Pastor Phil. So, for, for folks... <laughs> sleep deprivation, here we come. So, for... Um, yeah, so, th th this, is, this is a... Um, this is often a position that's found in contexts where there's um, a lot of minority folks, like in the south side of Chicago, which is where I was born. It's almost like there's, there's, a, there's a dejection to the point where it's like, well, you know what, we can't do anything about it. They're the ones who did all this to us, now they have to fix the problem. Well, there are some problems with this as well. And so, one, it completely excuses racial minorities uh, for their responses to injustice, and they blame society for the problems and, and dominant culture. And so to, to completely say this is completely on somebody else, you know, as if, if we're talking to the majority culture, you know, and say this is on you to fix, that's not the right answer. 
Okay. So the second weakness is that people of color are actually disempowered in this idea of the fact that it's you know the white culture's responsibility to fix everything. So what's beautiful about this, and so this is where our, our, our understanding of Scripture comes in, and this, this idea where the reason that we, ha- we need diversity and racial reconciliation is because we are better at doing things together than we are apart. So if the responsibility was just on one group to fix the problem, they might not even know fully what the problem is in order to fix it. Because because of our different cultural backgrounds, our social locations, the, 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 the places that we live and work, we all experience part of this reality that we call life in different ways. And so as we sort of come together and we hear each other's stories, we talk to each other about what's going on in our lives, we can actually better understand the problems. And then together, come and bring solutions. You see how that works? And so... Um, it's, it's not good to say, hey, it's the white responsibility or, you know, it, it, or to say it's even black responsibility. Hey, let's just empower them and let's like completely absolve ourselves because, man, I just feel like I can't do anything right either, right? You, 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 perhaps you guys have been there. I have a friend who wants to help so bad with this business of racial reconciliation that he's horrified to do anything wrong. And he just gets so like skittish with like I just don't want to say the wrong thing that he just doesn't do anything anything about anything. And so this is this is a rabbit trail but it's a necessary one. For that person find a friend who you can trust. Find someone that you can have a conversation with. Find someone to talk to who will trust your relationship despite the words that your mouth might say, because you might say something accidentally that's kind of offensive that the culture would say, but because you know each other, you know you're not trying to offend each other. And then you can begin to make some progress in this, right? And so um, it's, it's no individual race's responsibility to do it. We have to begin to do it together. And so uh, for the person who has tried in the past to do something positive in this regard, but you stepped on a landmine, be encouraged this morning, this evening, afternoon, today. Be encouraged today. Because I think that it is, in a sense, a new day if we begin to understand that not only why we're doing this, because it's a biblical call for this, but with whom we're doing this, with our brothers and sisters, we're all in the family. We don't have to worry about stuff like offending each other unintentionally because we actually give each other that much grace to have a conversation like this. And then because of that, we can move forward doing so so much more effectively because we're linking arms and serving and then pushing back the gates of hell together. So that's my little side tangent sidebar thing. But... Um, Okay, so I'm going to stop there because I have a couple more points for the white responsibility thing, but in my sort of driftings back and forth, I covered them. So the fourth one, here we go, the the mutual responsibility model. So 
With the colorblindness model, we've talked about strengths and, strengths and weaknesses there. We've talked about some weaknesses of the white responsibility model, the angle conformity model. But this is, I think, a biblical way of understanding how to move forward. And so, if you haven't been taking notes, this might be the place where if you are going to take them, that you should take them. Because we're talking about the Bible now. So, and not just like sociologists and what they think. Although I like them. So, this model is simple. It takes the teaching of human depravity seriously and then works towards solutions. And so it's saying that, okay, you're broken, I'm broken. As I watch the news and I'm getting information from it, and as you watch the news and getting information from it, we're all only getting part of the story, not only because we're not only telling part of the story, but because we only receive parts of the story that we want to receive. Okay? So... We are broken people in a broken world trying to move it towards something that's a semblance of order. And so this is what the mutual responsibility model sort of um, assumes. We're all made in God's image, and so and, and, and we can then move forward from there. I say, my favorite theologian, J. Diotis Roberts, that's J as in James Diotis Roberts, he says this, and he sort of speaks very plainly. I like, I like his bluntness in this. He says, blacks need to forgive and whites need to repent. This is the way to racial reconciliation. And for him, he was writing in, in like 71, so it was really a black and white issue at that point in time. And he was writing from Atlanta, so that was, that was the sort of thing there. So he says, blacks need to forgive and whites need to repent. This is the way towards racial reconciliation. So th it, it goes both ways. There's action on both sides to be taken or on every side to be taken. And so, and again, the mutuality is what we're talking about. So I want to explore this mutual responsibility in three ways. The first is to revisit the source of this, which is Scripture. We have to read Scripture with fresh eyes, understanding that God is redeeming as far as the curse is found. So, yes, he's redeeming our relationship with him, but he's also redeeming our relationships with others. So as far as the curse and brokenness is found, is as far as redemption is found. And so God is going to fix all of it, and we ought to live and sort of be a, a signpost in a, in a reality in the church of what God is doing and what he will do fully in his kingdom. And so when we read Scripture, we see that he's doing this horizontal work and this vertical work and this horizontal work of restoration. So reading the Scripture with fresh eyes. And again, that's important because when we begin to see this in the Bible, as we just read through any other story, like I read the, uh, my, my older daughter and I, Kendra, we are reading through the book of Ruth right now in our, in our Bible story time at night. Well... Boaz is a type of Christ, the kinsman redeemer. They're in Bethlehem, which is the breadbasket, the bread of life. You know, uh, like there's all sorts of things that, hey, Boaz is a type of Christ, you know, but he is meeting real needs. He's feeding Naomi and, and Ruth. He's, you know, allowing them to glean on his property. And then ultimately you have Naomi who was bitter in the beginning. She's holding 
the child of he who is in the line of Christ and because that's the line of redemption and there's just joy there. So there's real stuff. That, so like the vertical and the horizontal are, are at play everywhere is what I'm saying. And that's just one example of it. And so as we read Scripture with fresh eyes, we'll, we'll then see that a lot of the New Testament especially is engrossed in this Jew-Gentile ethnic sort of you know, bringing people together. And, so, and we'll see that, wow, they're a lot like us in America. They're crazy, and they got some problems, but the gospel is powerful enough to overcome it. So reading Scripture with fresh eyes. Secondly, allowing iron to sharpen iron. Allowing iron to sharpen iron. So my, my wife said it's, it'll be on my tombstone that iron sharpens iron most effectively across the lines of difference. Iron sharpens iron most effectively across the lines of difference. And so we, we understand this oftentimes in the church. We have, you know, groups called Titus 2 women. What is that? Older women and younger women. We have 2 Timothy 2-2 groups, you know, older men teaching younger men the doctrines of the, of the faith, right? Do you guys have that here? No? Probably a different version of it. But, you know, Titus 2 women, like the 2-2-2 the club, you know, like there's, you know, all the guys get together and they, they teach their... And, and then, um, so like, what's, what's, the, what's the value there? Well, you have older and younger. That's a line of difference. And we're learning across that line, right? So we avail ourselves to learning across that line of difference, age. And then I know that when I got married, um, I thought I was pretty spiritual. I had an MDiv, so I was a seminary grad. And I figured, you know what? I got a lot to teach her. <laughs> and then we got married moved into this like 515-square-foot apartment, and then, holy cow, I saw just how selfish and sinful I was. Why? Because you have two people who are different. God has thrown us into the same little apartment. we got to figure out how to, how to work things out. Our rough edges were sharp, or were, were like rubbing up against each other, but we were better for it because we stuck to it. Guy, girl, you know, we're just different. Because the toilet paper should come over, not under, right? <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I wasn't going to do it, but I had to slip it in there. But that's a line of difference that we expect to learn across, right? The age sort of thing. That's what this is, discipleship. You know, we learn from our spouses and those who are different from us, you know, gender-wise. But two lines of difference that we often don't avail ourselves to in America is class and race. Those are two very unexplored lines of difference that we could learn a great deal across, but as it pertains to class, you know, the, the Christian faith, we, we, we often assume that um, teaching is almost like the biblical, or the, uh, in, in the business economy. So, in the business world, information always flows from the top down, from the CEO to the janitor. Never the other way up. The janitor's closet might be right next door to the executive conference room, but it's worlds apart. But in the faith, we assume that those who are more wealthy have everything to teach the impoverished and never the other way because we just mirror that same idea. For example, if you get on an airplane and you head to work with uh, Christians, but perhaps impoverished Christians somewhere, um, we, we, we go with the assumption that we have everything to give them. But we're, we're just, you know, our minds are blown when we come back home 
and we've learned so much from them. Why are we so shocked? Because they have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within them that we have. Well, we're the ones who have the money. And we're the ones giving monetarily to them, perhaps. And so we assume that, you know, because we're the ones who have more funds, more, you know, more money, then we have everything to learn and nothing to receive. And so my encouragement to us is that, especially in America, because we know economics is fairly racialized, not always, but fairly racialized, so this is one area that we have to work hard to learn across that line of difference. So that's class. The second is race. So to be considered a learned or well-studied Christian, in many of the circles that I even traverse in and that I teach in, you can be considered that having not read one person of color, read one book by a person of color, or even a woman for that, for that matter. And so uh, we have to begin to learn across, yes, the line of age, sharpening each other across that line of difference, and across genders, right? Because God has intentionally given us to each other for, for the, our mutual edification. And then, yes, across lines of class, there's so much illumination that can happen there if we just avail ourselves to that, especially those who are on the upper side of this sort of class hierarchy, and then even inviting our brothers and sisters to be those who help instruct us because the way the world works has told them you don't have anything to tell somebody who has more than you, more uh, monetary resources than you. And then also learning across the lines of race and culture. It's important for us to begin to listen to each other and how we're digesting current events, right? Across the lines of race, across cultural lines, and not just on social media, but person to person. Because when you're on social media, we, this sort of like we, we, we have a tendency to dehumanize each other. Why? Because we're not looking at a person face to face. This is the whole idea of the incarnation of, of Jesus Christ, is it not? That there's a word who took on flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. Because if there's a message just hanging in the air, like a tweet or a Facebook post or whatever it might be. It doesn't have the same gravitas as us sitting and talking to a person who is living and breathing. There's something important about that. So, often, you know, for the last couple, for, you know, until now and last time that we met, you're, you're probably wondering, okay, how do I actually do this, Walter? How do I actually do this? Well, this, this, this is it. This is it. We have to begin to read Scripture with fresh eyes, and then we also have to sharpen each other across these lines of difference, and especially ones that we're not used to hearing somebody across the lines of race and culture. So, and it really just asking lots of questions. Tell me how that hit you. What happened in your mind and in your heart when this was going on? Let's explore that. Hey, I think it might have been different. Hey, did you read that article? Let's read it together. Let's talk. This is a very, very, very helpful thing that I think is just rich with biblical and theological support because we're following the example of Christ. And so uh, I'm, I'm sort of marching right into the third point. So after reading Scripture with fresh eyes, learning from, from one another, and then C, which is living incarnationally. So th this is, 
I was stealing my thunder a moment ago. So looking at Christ, because John 1.14 gives us this sort of idea that Christ took upon the circumstances and the location of another person. He took on the, social, the, the uh, circumstances and the location of another. So the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. He became flesh. He took upon our circumstances, full participation in all that it meant to be human. So the ability to hunger, experience physical and emotional pain, even death. So he took up the circumstances of the people who he was trying to engage. This is extremely powerful. Because how often do we sit back passively and we want to understand somebody or we don't even want to understand somebody who's over there. But if we're following the example of Christ, we will go and take on their circumstance. We'll be with them. We'll take up residence with them. And so the second part of that is like he took up residence, the location with them. Christ physically, and that Greek word is tabernacled with them. Taking us back to the Old Testament where, the, where God's people were wandering around in the wilderness. God tabernacled. He was in the tabernacle that was taken with them wherever they went. So Christ did that for the people he was trying to reach. So we actually have to be incarnate with one another. So my, my parents, um, they live in California. I live here, obviously. And all of a sudden, they get really excited about like Skyping every weekend. And so they would like send me a text message, hey, Walter, let's Skype you know, on Saturday. And I was like, man, my parents, they just, all of a sudden, they just love their boy like in a new way. And so I was like, okay, mom, okay, dad. And so we would Skype and quickly to find, you know, I come to find out that they don't want to talk to me. They want to talk to Kendra and Kaya. They're grandchildren, right? And so um, we do this every weekend. We will talk, we will Skype, but they will always, if they have the ability, drop hundreds of dollars to actually come and be with us. Because there's nothing like being in the same place with somebody. There's a, there's a way in which you are able to get to know somebody when you're sitting face-to-face with them, when you're sharing a meal with them, when you're breathing the same air together, when you're facing the unexpected surprise together, when you're face-to-face, there's, there's something that you just can't do over Skype or over social media for that matter. And so the Scripture is giving us something here. Christ is modeling something for us here that is of the utmost importance. Because we think that because I read an article on whatever news outlet, I understand the people that it's telling me about. No. If, Christ, if that didn't work for Christ, the omniscient one, it's not going to work for us to be able to communicate, to be able to interact, to, to get to know, to be able to meet needs and all those sorts of things. And so, the three things, again, one reading Scripture with fresh eyes. Two, allowing iron sharpened iron in ways that we haven't done in our country because of our nation's past. And then, uh, three, living incarnationally. And I know those are so simple, but they're extremely profound at the same time. And this is hopefully allowing Scripture to inform us on how we, we begin to move forward with this. And so, how do we actually apply this model? Pastor Tom, what, what time are we going to, should I stop?
let's, we'll just start going, and we'll just stop in five or ten minutes. So, <clears throat> a, cu- a couple of ways to, to do this, um, even t- putting the cookies a little bit more on the more practical shelf. So, as a citizen in a country where there's all types of people around who, pu- who participate in the political process, um, it's great to do this with everybody in mind and not just ourselves and our own needs and people like us. And so as we're talking about economics and solutions to economic you know, uh, issues, it's great to be able to talk to people and understand their struggle, understand how they got there. It's not that everyone who is impoverished is just lazy. There are some lazy people who are impoverished, but that's not everybody's story, correct? So it might be, okay, well, the way I vote might be informed by the story of my brother and my sister, because we're in this together. I'm not just voting for my own good, but for the greater good of society. I mean, as we're talking about refugees and immigration, this is, this is something that is very important because we have uh, made people who are living here, who are not citizens, a political problem. And don't look at them as image bearers of Christ. And this is very important. This is very important. So as we begin to just hear the stories of people who are either you know, beginning to start the citizenship process or are, have been in it for 15 years uh, or whatever it might be, we have to begin to just hear the stories of those who are in that predicament and love them as people. And then, of course, there are ways in which we can help them to, you know, along the path towards citizenship, but that is only a part of the puzzle, not the whole thing. And so, um, in fact, Dr. Echeverria and I are going to be doing some videos about how to um, support and love and just um, be there for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are trying to grapple with the citizenship situation. And so, again, thinking about those things as we interact as though they're people, not problems. They're image bearers. So that's as, as a citizen, those are just two things I'll just throw out there. There's a whole bunch of things we can begin to uh, talk about under that bucket. But that's just two things. Um, a second layer, so first is as a citizen. The second is in the church and in our faith. So some of us might want to voluntarily put ourselves under the tutelage of somebody who's different than us. Under the leadership or under the ministry of somebody who's different because there's lots to learn there. And so some of you guys are saying, well, I don't want to leave my church. I'm not saying you have to do that. But you might listen to the sermons of somebody who's from a different racial background. So, and, and, that, and that's simple in this day and age, right? You know, everyone has a podcast. <laughs> um, a lot of people who shouldn't have a podcast have a podcast. So, <laughs> um, for, so um, H.B. Charles is somebody who, who you can listen to, H.B. Charles. He is the best collision of what we call biblical exegesis, which is basically looking into the Scripture and trying to figure out what the Bible's saying and then exposing that, like an exposition of, of Scripture, but then also like the everything it means to be a part of the like African-American preaching tradition. It's this phenomenal sort of like thing called H.B. Charles. You should listen to him. Uh, Brian Loritz, a fantastic preacher of the Word of God. Uh, Brian with a Y, L-O-R, 
L-O-R-I-T-T-S is his last name, Loritz. Another just person who would be fantastic to listen to as I just preach and teach the Word. And that will just enrich you because there's some nuggets that you might get there. Not that anybody else is incapable of delivering those, but because we're all shaped in our ministries and in our teaching by our own background, it just helps to be availed to folks who are doing it from a different perspective. Trying to be a good steward with these five minutes. Reading books by people who are of different backgrounds is another way to do it. Um, there, there's oh, there is a podcast coming out of Southeastern Seminary in a video series I want to tell you about because I'll be on it, and then the good doctor over here will be on it, and uh, it's called From the Lectern, and it is the podcast. But then we're also going to have a video series talking about a lot of similar things that we're talking about today. But, in, but then also just walking through th- basic things like how to interpret Scripture and how that begins to take place in an environment that's very multicultural. So that's like in your faith and in the church, beginning to listen to new voices, beginning to welcome them in, beginning to just take in the world and the faith in Scripture from the perspective of someone who's not just like yourselves, which is a wonderful Wonderful exercise. So that's in our faith. The third level is as an individual. And this is very easy. Simply make friends and you have good conversations. You, you speak into each other's lives. Um, it's someone who you don't view as a charity case, but someone who you see as a genuine brother or sister in the Lord. You guys can just bear each other's burdens, be friends, do life together. And then these issues will begin to come up because we begin to talk about what's on your heart, what you're grappling with, just the day-to-day stuff of life will begin to, especially in this era in which we find ourselves, right? Those conversations will come up. So I sped through that last part, but uh, I do want to stop so we can uh, have some time for the Q&A, which, and then at that point, we can talk about some more contemporary slash current events. Um, And so... Before we go to the Q&A, do you want to do a break before that? Yeah, before we, before we do that, any questions about that mutual responsibility model? If you want to formulate them over the break, you can do that as well. And with that said, actually with nothing said, we can adjourn. Five minutes. <laughs>